Blog Talk Radio. Coast time, and wherever you are, it is 10 a.m. on the Pacific West Coast. My name is Michael A. Gordon, and I am your host for The Mind Whisperer. Welcome to the show. This is our, I believe, our fourth installment, and uh, hopefully today goes well. Last episode, uh, we seemed to have some sort of technical glitch, and the show went off the air after four minutes, so I hope that doesn't happen. And welcome to our uh, login guests who are on the chat forum, and you're welcome to participate and ask questions online, as well as call in uh, to the number uh, live on the show at 347-945-7891. That's 347-945-7891. This program is, uh, I want to say at the outset, is I guess uh, sort of spiritually oriented, well, not I guess it is, and uh, but not religious in the sense. So I don't want to scare anybody away that uh, I have any uh, particular bias or against or you know for any religion. That's not my purview. Uh, my background is as a uh, mindfulness influenced uh, psychotherapist and an Aikido teacher, and I'll get more into that uh, later on. And I've also been a uh, journalist broadcaster for many years, as well as a performer. And um, as a a psychotherapist and a a practitioner of the mind-body art of Aikido, I am very much interested in and have a a strong background in the intersection between our daily life and practical concerns for how we live uh, a conscious, um, I guess, ethical life in a way, Um, and how that intersects with primarily cognitive neuroscience, which is the study of the mind and brain. And that's a whole other topic that we could go on about another show. It's what's called the hard problem in psychology, in research. It's a philosophical and a scientific question. What is mind? What is brain? But as far as we're concerned for today's program, we will, we will discuss that broader issue within the context of today's topic. And today's topic is neither gluttony nor desire, openness and desire. Oh, pardon me, neither neither gluttony nor deprivation, openness and desire. And today is a continuation of the previous episode, which was uh, discussing vulnerability. So we will discuss vulnerability, uh, desire, openness, all of those terms um, as they affect us within the discussion of what is mind, what is brain. And and really, broadly put, that discussion is about consciousness. And we experience consciousness as who we are as we walk through the world. You, you know, awareness is sort of a general term that you could use. And it's also a cognitive term to describe what your attention is on. And the problem is most of our time, um, we're operating without knowing it from our subconscious patterns. 
So I want to uh, begin the program this morning just with a very short recap of uh, the vulnerability segment that I did. And please call in at any time, by the way. Um, feel free to ask any question on any topic because the, the, this show is meant to be a conversation, not just a lecture by any means. And I really would like your, your participation. And my goal is to be able to weave the topic into any conversation that uh, that naturally occurs or question that arises um, in, you know, during the program. So we're here to talk about any practical daily concern from raising your children to interacting with your employer, your spouse, um, sex, love, relationships, money, any aspect of the, you know, the, the pie of your life is, is relevant here. So the, the, the program that we originally did on vulnerability, we stole a bit of the uh, title from Brene Brown, who's gained uh, a lot more notoriety as a researcher from her lectures on TED.com. And TED is a fantastic resource if you don't already know. It uh, stands for Technology, Entertainment, and Design. And it's uh, a platform for people who are highly innovative and uh, all of whom have to deliver their particular subject of expertise and interest within 20 minutes. And they've had everyone from Bill Gates to um, Tony Robbins to Brene Brown. And Brene Brown's um, topic of interest to us is, is was her talk, Vulnerability as Strengths. And essentially what she did as a researcher is looked at connectivity between human beings. What is it that motivates us and is a hindrance to being connected? It's a natural, um, even a biologically driven impulse of human beings from infancy, the drive towards attachment and bonding and connection. And, you know, in terms of early childhood development, particularly from infancy, those beginning connections are vital to us developing as a self-aware, autonomous, whole, intact person who's capable of giving and receiving love and trusting and all those things because our very neuronal development occurs in the bonding process with primarily mom, but also dad and, and extending out from that circle. So right from the get-go, uh, an infant reaches up for the mother's breast to feed on breast milk and oxytocin, a hormone is released in the breast milk, which signals the infant's brain that this is a good experience, that it's safe and all of the appropriate biological mechanisms develop down that pathway, including your sense of self and your growing personality development. So where does that take us to in terms of vulnerability? Well, the problem is, is that any kind of disruption in our early life, overwhelm, uh, dysfunction, abuse certainly, but even the perceived lack of attention or the perceived connection with other beings as we're so truly vulnerable and dependent as, as children, uh, as we're forming our, our perception and our, our models for the world, any disruption of that process can leave us very disadvantaged. And what tends to happen is that we, particularly the way we are conditioned in the West here, we develop this disconnect between what we're really feeling 
and wanting to make sure that our environment stays secure. So sometimes it's just the perceived abandonment by a parent. Sometimes a parent will say something without realizing the impact on the child or leave the child too long, et cetera, et cetera. There's a lot of work being done on attachment theory and, uh, and, and trying to improve and understand the vital role that parenting plays in, in the early childhood development. We won't really get into that this episode. But suffice to say, that's a very crucial time. And so in the West with our, with our nuclear family model, what tends to happen is that we put aside or we are, met, we are made in a way to, to feel that we're at risk if we are being very authentic. So a typical scenario is a child in the supermarket and having a meltdown, crying tantrum, a fit, whatever. Something's going on for the child. Your job as a parent or a parent's role is to guide and model safety and and containment of those emotions. So there's a beginning and end to emotional experience and content. And it's a very, very frustrating position to be in. Um, and it triggers us as adults when uh, this dependent little being uh, is acting kind of inconveniently. And, and we kind of lose our patience and some of us uh, don't have the greatest skills and haven't worked on our on ourselves and our own triggers, and so we kind of go awry. It throws us off our center, or we just don't know how to handle it. We handle it the best we can. And the problem is that that experience can send negative messages or be shaming or um, shut down the natural, authentic expression of the child and the need for the child. I'm not suggesting you should enable a child just to throw tantrums, and I'm not saying that for a second. But just using that as an example, where then you start to buffer what you're really feeling rather than having natural consequences. Okay, you want to throw a tantrum, we're going to go back to the car. Um, or what do you need, or et cetera, et cetera. And what tends to happen is without knowing it, we are sending a message to the child that what they're feeling is bad, it's wrong, because it affects us. Because it, it's, it's hard for us to deal with as opposed to finding a way to help the child through whatever they need to do. Label their emotion, you know, find some self-soothing, remove them from the environment, whatever it takes. And so as you teach the child those appropriate emotional controls and the limits of their experience, then, then they can go about in life as they go further along in their social and emotional development and can carry on relationships. And this is very vital to our development. I was just reading a quote from Daniel Goleman, who is the author of uh, Emotional Intelligence. If you haven't read that book, it's terrific. It's based on research on this very topic. And essentially that he says that our ability to manage and regulate our emotions and stay in the present moment is crucial to our interdependence with other beings and to be able to function in the world. That's why he called the book Emotional Intelligence, um, because handling your emotion is, is really the cornerstone of how we relate to other beings and to our world. Now, coming back, it's apropos of Daniel Goleman, I'll get there in a second, coming back to this notion that we kind of create this buffer to get what we think we need to get in terms to stay secure. Remember, if we think that we're risking approval or acceptance by our parents, who are the gods and the providers of our existence, then we risk being annihilated. Being annihilated. Um, they'll abandon us, we won't have love, we won't have food, we won't have shelter. On a primal level, to a child, that's a direct connection. 
if not conscious, definitely on a primal emotional level. So this is a, 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 a kind of the conundrum that we find ourselves in here in terms of our relationship to ego, which is now I'm this person who's at risk with my very existence and how we kind of develop the separation between what we're really feeling, what we really need, and what we feel we need to say in the front that we put out towards the world. And this is what um, Winnicott called, you know, the false self. Now, when the Dalai Lama uh, first received an audience of Western uh, social scientists and therapists, 1987, uh, the Mind Life Institute um, put on the first of... Uh, a series of dialogues that have continued with the Dalai Lama. And the Dalai Lama asked at that time, this was in Dharamsala, so he had fled uh, Tibet and was in exile in Dharamsala, India. And he was very curious to know what is the nature of suffering in the West. And so he asked this panel of therapists, what is the most prevalent problem that arises in your practice with your patients and your your clients. What is the prevailing um, you know uh, symptom or nature of of the suffering of your patients? And one of the therapists immediately answered and said, "Well, that's easy. It would be low self-esteem, self-worth." And the Dalai Lama looked puzzled and looked at his interpreter and spoke back to his interpreter and said, I, I don't understand. Um, sorry, I'm just looking at a comment there that maybe I'm not on the air. Um, just going to check, make sure I've got an email. Okay, here we go. Great. Um, making sure that we're broadcasting live here. So uh, the Dalai Lama was perplexed by this notion that people are fundamentally suffering from low self-esteem. Um, that there's a the broken relationship at the very core of who we are. And so he went one by one through the room and asked the other people present, um, do, do you experience this low self-esteem? Yes. All through the room, unanimously, all of them said, oh, yes, we experience it, and our, our patients experience it, and it's, it's widespread. So this was very confusing to the Dalai Lama because in the East, and particularly in Tibet, with a tradition of, what we call contemplative practice, in other words, meditation, the practice in, daily in the culture uh, of simply in a pragmatic way, not in a religious sense necessarily, just sitting and being and observing what's going on in your mind. And, there, and it cultivates a sense of presence and acceptance and patience and non-judgment of what arises emotionally and, and in our thought processes, etc. from you know, hatred and anger, jealousy, desire, all these things that arise in the mind, they're just a process of, of consciousness of the mind, and they don't define us. And so that kind of mindfulness and um, basic awareness of what's going on and the nature of the ego to wrestle with these concepts is the foundation of of uh, Tibetan, if not greater Eastern um perspective on self and the experience of self, that self is not this fixed identity. So from what I understand, one of the participants present decided to you know, try and translate and explain this concept of low self-worth 
uh, and neurosis to the Dalai Lama. And what they've explained was Winnicott's notion that, and it's also a Freudian concept, that um, about the ego, which is that um, the insecurity of unfulfilled needs creates this false exterior that we now operate from in the world. And so the irony of that situation is, is that we get attention for and we build up this character, this, this, this representation, this persona of ourselves uh, to protect from what's really underneath. So it's really kind of a sham. It's kind of a mask that we have to the world. And the problem is, in terms of vulnerability, is vulnerability is the key component to living and, and receiving and giving love and connection authentically. And the problem becomes, as Brene Brown talks about, that our fear that we now, because we're in this predicament, that we're protecting this secret identity, this fear that people will find out and reject and dismiss and judge who we are, because we're kind of hiding it in fear, keeps us from being open and sharing who we really are. And so it gets in the way of doing what comes naturally. And what she found in her research is that the people who um, had healthy relational skills, and it really does take skill, uh, didn't embrace vulnerability as some idealistic, altruistic trait. It just was something, is something that's necessary for them to be able to connect authentically to other people. And so they become successful. They train, they've trained themselves. It's become what's called a trait in psychological terms. So coming back to the, the Buddhist approach, it's fundamentally different. The fundamental premise in, in the Buddhist approach is that we are born with this golden spirit that's untainted. And we have this universal right as beings to experience love and to experience connection, unconditional love. And so somewhere in that process, as I've explained, we go awry. And the, the teaching of the Buddha, which is outlined in very, very actual pragmatic, practical terms as a psych psychological framework. Now, this is interesting because having studied this extensively, it was actually cornerstone to my, my master's thesis. Uh, many people misunderstand the cultural and, and um, religious trappings of Buddhist practice and don't understand that underneath uh, deeply um, the, the surface of Buddhist uh, ritual that there is a very complex psychological um, and theoretical framework. And so what the basics, what were called the four noble truths that the, the Buddha taught were that all beings suffer for the reason that I described because we um, essentially are born and realize that life is not forever, that people and the, the, the nature of life and how it's expressed in, in the things around us from a flower to uh, a dog that we adopt, uh, all these things are impermanent, that all beings will get sick and, and age and die. And that is very distressing uh, to, our, to our mind because we don't want to die and we don't want our loved ones to die. The second aspect of that is that um, where we get caught and hooked in that process is then, then that makes us 
tend to lean in one of two directions, which are really the same thing. One is to cling to pleasure, and the other aspect of that is to avoid distress, avoid pain. Now, that's a whole other, again, a whole other show that we can talk about that, but you can see how, how that fuels us to, to be addicted to certain things and want to avoid other things. We want to fall in love. We don't want to break up. And you can see how vulnerability comes into that. We want to fall in love with somebody, uh, but at the same time, we're afraid that it may not last forever. The person may not like us as we really are, or they may find somebody else. And that gets in the way of just being present and open and allowing that love connection to grow because we've stopped being vulnerable out of fear. Now, ironically, this is what happens. We present this false self. We say, okay, I'm going to fall in love with this person because they're accepting me, you know, but they're not really accepting you for who you truly are. They're accepting the front that you put forward. And meanwhile, you're operating from, you know, some point they're going to find out who I really am, which is insecure and, um, you know, I have different boundaries than I'm actually expressing and likes and dislikes and et cetera, et cetera. And ironically, by operating from that fear and keeping this front up, is what they're seeing is that you are not being authentic. And they end up um, having conflict with you because you can't hide what's really going on when you're intimate with somebody. So this brings us to, uh, uh, as time marches on here, this brings us to uh, another uh, very pertinent um, aspect of today's program, which is the words openness and desire. There's a very um, uh, rich um, and insightful book by uh, an author named Mark Epstein, who I've read quite a bit of his work. He, he wrote a book called Thoughts Without a Thinker, um, How to Fall to Pieces Without Falling Apart. Terrific insights on comparing Western and, and Eastern psychology. And he's a psychiatrist in New York City and uh, is involved in these dialogues and is written extensively on the, on the two different positions on, on how we function as human beings. And Mark Epstein wrote a book called Open to Desire. And, and the core of this book addresses this second noble truth in, in Buddhism and where, as Westerners, we kind of misinterpret the meaning of, um, of that problem that we cling to pleasurable experiences and we try to avoid painful experiences and the third truth incidentally goes on to say the way out of that is meditation that by just observing how you get caught up will help you understand it's just a process and how we then we can become aware with ourselves and kind of develop this friendliness and acceptance and non-judgment and loving kindness towards ourselves boy i really love falling in love but i really am afraid of getting broken up with, and so that creates this paradox. So uh, Open to Desire explores the, the misinterpretation that desire itself is to blame because the, the translation of the word dukkha from uh, the, I believe that's the Sanskrit, if I'm not mistaken, or Pali, I can't remember which one it is, but it's the translation of that term that as, as desire, and really what, what it is is clinging it's, or grasping. It's not desire itself. And so um, Mark Epstein explores that topic and says basically the notion is that we can approach our desire much like a meditation practice 
where you're able to bear witness and be present with what's happening without letting it carry you away. So this is a very difficult thing to do, and it takes skillful, what they call skillful means in the, in the Buddhist path to develop this awareness and put it into practice in your daily life. We really want that new car. We really want um, to be with a person in relationship, but there are catches. The new car comes with a trade-off in terms of our finances or priorities in our life. But fundamentally what it is, is the grasping sets us up that this external thing that is the object of our desire will fulfill us, whether it's love or sex or money or advancement in our career or more education or new clothes or a vacation. And as you may know, if you've struggled with any form of addiction, the the object of your of your urges becomes inconsequential after a while. The initial experiences of euphoria, let's say with a drug like heroin or alcohol, but let's take particularly something like heroin, which operates on your natural endorphins, your painkillers in your body, as actually, uh, interestingly enough, uh, does a love relationship. And so what happens is you say, this external thing gave me this feeling. I fell in love with this person. I became infatuated with this person. I experienced sexual desire or romantic desire towards this person. I, I experienced the, the euphoria of taking this drug. And um, for the initial moment, we are caught up in that high of the moment. And, but the, the problem is we want more. And the experience of wanting more and anticipating more of that process starts to take over our natural biopsychological processes of being balanced in terms of relating to in the world and how it affects our biochemistry. So all of a sudden, the hormones in your body that normally go with, on balance with pleasurable experiences and being an intact person and being whole become completely tilted off kilter and we now habituate to this experience of scoring this drug or, or seeing this person again or needing that person, having to have that person or that thing or that you know, sugary thing or whatever we want or that shiny object actually takes over the neural pathway. And we, and we become driven at a very, uh, again, primal uh, motivational level psychobiologically we believe we're fully engaged with that, that external experience, the, the acquiring and the grasping towards that experience is life or death. And so this is where in Epstein says in the book, Open to Desire, we can learn to come back and kind of hold our center in that process, that we can observe ourselves in, in the presence of that desire and rest in the openness of that space. And so that means we don't have to, as I say, deprive ourselves, but we don't have to give in to the gluttony of experience. And the, the middle ground, as it's called in one school of Buddhist practice, is to, to walk that path, to be able to fully engage in life, in reality, without getting carried away by whatever emotions it is. We can fully experience the emotions, but they don't define us. We can observe and, and learn from the process as we go along and the, the thoughts that it elicits and the emotions that come out of that without it defining who we are, without it taking over our core goodness. 
and and our um, ability to just stay open and, and neutral. So this is absolutely fundamental to vulnerability. It teaches us that openness and vulnerability, for example, go together, that we can learn to trust that we can be open and we're not eroding some permanent state of self that it's like like a sand sculpture we we, are, we love and we just created that the wave is going to come and wash it away at any moment. You know, a wave of emotion comes and then it subsides. And so we can observe ourselves and learn about our, our love relationships. Very quickly before I, I we run out of time, very quick story about my dog. When I when I first adopted my dog as a rescue dog, you know, I I I fell in love with him and and my immediate um response after after bonding with this dog was, Oh my god, he's gonna sick get sick and die at some point and that's gonna crush me. And rather than avoid trying to avoid that future grief and that and that horrible feeling of like how am I gonna deal with that when it happens, which is a future fear, I decided to go in and I connected to that feeling of grieving and having to let him go at some point. And a very interesting transition happened, which is that I felt overcome with love and connection for that dog and appreciation. And I broke through the fear and learned to connect with him in an even deeper and more present way, which means I take care of him better and, and really empathize and want to care for him. So that's the, that's the end of our program today. I, I really hope you enjoyed it. And uh, we look forward to hearing your comments and your feedback and, and to join us again every Tuesday and Thursday, 10 a.m. Pacific. The show is archived on Blog Talk Radio. And uh, it's been my pleasure to host you today. My name is Michael Gordon. And uh, take care of yourselves, take care of each other, and and enjoy being and living your life, your, this precious gift of life, every moment that you have it uh, in every way possible. Take care, and we'll see you next time on The Mind Whisperer. <laughs>